today we're going to start more directly with the minor prophets and we're going to begin with the book of Hosea. Now, Hosea needs context and I'll give you that next week. Hosea's got some marvelous themes and I'm going to give you those next week. But this week, I just am in the mood to talk about something particular. I want to talk about the metaphors in Hosea. And not all of them, because I can't get all of them wedged into one class. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to divide the class into three parts. The first part, we're just going to talk about what metaphors are for just a moment. And, and, and do it in a way that may heighten our ability to read and understand scripture. How old is your son? Ten. Come here, young man. <laughs> okay. Look. I want you to tell him your name. I'm Ryan. And Ryan, how old are you? Ten. And do you play chess? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Go sit down, Ryan. Everybody give Ryan a hand. Folks like Ryan, who are 10, and folks like us, who aren't, we can all learn to read the Bible better. The Bible is not a Dick and Jane book. The Bible is not a how-to manual. The Bible is this masterful piece of God communicating to humanity in some incredible ways. And it's simple enough to understand the gospel message of salvation if you're 10 years old. But it's also deep enough to where elephants can swim. And so I want us to talk about metaphors because they're used in the Bible and we need to understand what they are. Second thing I want us to do is talk about the specific metaphors in Hosea. At least one major metaphor in Hosea. And we'll talk about some more as well. And then the third thing I want to do is I want to talk about our points for home. We're going to spend a little more time on those than we normally do because those are some additional metaphors apart from the main one that we'll cover in the second segment of this lesson. So with that, are you ready? Let's start then with metaphors. Now let's think about the Bible for a moment. The Bible and the prophets in the Bible are about God communicating to humanity. Almost all the prophets begin with the statement, this is the word of the Lord. If I put this down, it's not going to stay. But I'd better be able to see people right over there. Um, it's And I have trouble seeing you all with that one. We'll make do. The Bible and the prophets are about God using people and language to communicate to us. Communicated to people then, communicate to people today, and God willing will communicate to people tomorrow. This is a communication to us. And so we want to understand God's 
communication to us. And what does that entail? Well, on a very initial threshold level, we need to translate the language in which his original communication came into the language we know. So we need to take, for example, the Hebrew of the Old Testament and turn it into, for most of us in this room, English. By the way, you may be aware that for a long time in history, that was something that could get you martyred. You were not allowed to put scripture into English. You could have the Hebrew and Hebrew. You could have the Hebrew translated into Greek, as it was by the time of Jesus and Paul. You could have Hebrew as it was translated into Latin by Jerome and used by the church. You could have the New Testament Greek translated into Latin as it was by Jerome and used by the church. But don't translate it into English or you're going to die. And one of the principal reasons given was that English is such a common, vulgar language. That it is blasphemous to take the holy words of God and turn them into our language. Now there may have been a lot more entailed in that, including some politics and a few other things. But we're not at that stage, and I don't think that was ever an appropriate stage. I think the appropriateness is to take the words of Scripture and try to put them into languages we understand. But the problem doesn't end there. You can take this Scripture and you can put it into a language we understand. I can tell you that the football game was seven up. And you would know the score means seven to seven. It's tied. It's seven up. But in another culture, another place, you might be thinking it's a soda. Seven up. So we not only need to translate it into language that we understand, but we've got to work to translate different cultures. Some things mean something in one culture that they don't in another. In America, if you flash someone a peace sign means peace. In England, that's shooting the middle finger at someone. Especially if you do it, I think, in where your fingers are reversed. Which is why when Churchill was talking about Hitler and bringing about peace, everybody in England in that famous video of him having V for victory, he was also shooting the middle finger at Hitler. In that crusty way Churchill had. So we've got to not only understand the language, but we've got to understand the culture. And now when we're looking at something like Hosea, we've got to add a historical element as well. Because what happened 2,700 years ago is not even culturally necessarily what we see today. So that's one task of understanding Scripture. A second task of understanding Scripture is understanding the different forms of communicating. Now, if you think about it, I can communicate to you by speaking. But I can also communicate to you 
by putting a slide together and putting a picture with it. And that picture might be worth a thousand words. We communicate visually by how we dress. You can look at my facial expressions and they can tell you uh, whether or not uh, uh, I'm excited or bored. You can listen to my tone of voice and you can tell whether I'm intent about something or whether I'm flippant. Um, Did you see, you know, Saturday Night Live used to have the Celebrity Jeopardy. And uh, one of the episodes of Celebrity Jeopardy uh, that I remember, uh, you know, in Jeopardy you're supposed to give your answer and end it with a question, or your answer in a question form. So, you know, if, if if the question is, you know, um, before we got Pastor Brent, who took care of this class in that role? The answer is, who is Steve Taylor? You know, or you, you, you so there was a one where they were doing the fake Jeopardy on Saturday Night Live, and the person said, um, you know, gave the answer, and the answer wasn't in the form of a question. And so the Alex Trebek said, "I'm sorry, but you have to answer in the form of a question." And the contestant said the exact same thing, but at the end just lifted their voice up. So instead of saying, um, who is Steve Taylor? She said, Steve Taylor? <laughs> that is correct. Because it had to be in the form. You know, the way we say things, even our tone of voice alters stuff. So when you look at the Bible, God's got lots of ways of communicating. Sometimes it's just a thus saith the Lord. Here are the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. Should I murder someone? No. Why? God said it. But sometimes God speaks in poetry. He talks in the Psalms about the rising of the sun and the setting of the same. From the rising of the sun till the setting of the same, the name of the Lord is to be praised. That, that's, that's not a statement of science in the sense that the sun's moving and the earth is stationary. That's a poetic reference. But it's also an example of how sometimes God speaks to us from a human perspective. So to us, it looks like the sun rises and the sun sets. We still use that language, even though the earth hadn't moved. I mean, the sun hadn't moved. God uses our language. He uses our perceptions. He uses lots of different methods to illustrate his truth. Jesus would tell parables to help people understand their truth. Now, among all of the different forms of communication that the linguistic wonks have found is the world of similes and metaphors. And so I want to open the door to metaphors for us in this class because we think in metaphors. They lace our minds in ways we don't even realize. 
We don't under, we, we don't know the depths in which metaphors are in our brain. And so it makes sense if they're in our brain and we think with metaphors that God will use metaphors to make us think. A metaphor is, and, and I deal with these in trial. I'm sure you do as well. We deal with these in trial all the time. How do you take some complicated web and help someone understand it? Well, the, a metaphor says you can understand this if you understand that. And it's just taking those two. So like time can be understood by money. And that's a common metaphor all of us use all the time, even if you've never thought about it. I mean, we say all the time, in effect, time is money. So we'll talk about how I spent 10 minutes doing this. Spent. That's a money word. That's a metaphor. A flat tire cost me an hour. That's a metaphor. It's a money metaphor for time. I invested a lot of time here. That's a money metaphor in time. Don't waste your time is a money metaphor in time. I can save you 30 minutes. A metaphor in time. I can give you an hour. That's a metaphor of money or some other type of commerce as I give to you something. There's a profound book that was landmark on this by two fellows, Dr. George Lakoff and uh, Dr. Mark Johnson. Lakoff was a cognitive, or is, I think he's still alive. Lakoff, a cognitive scientist at uh, Berkeley and uh, uh, Johnson of philosophy, a philosopher, a professor especially philosophy of language. And they write about this, and they write about how metaphors just permeate our minds. Becky and I were talking about it last night, the metaphor of, of um, arguing. Arguing takes on military metaphors a lot. Let me give you my position. Can you defend your position? I will advance my argument. You can't withstand my argument. My argument will crush your defenses. I mean, we, we have metaphors that just completely lace our vocabulary and our understanding. They're based on culture, but they're hardwired into our brain. And as a result, we can use those easily. I can tell you I spent an hour on this slide or 10 minutes on this slide and you don't imagine me taking time out of my pocket and spending it to a cashier who's going to take it and give me the slide. You just automatically know what I mean. The way we think in metaphors today is something that didn't happen brand new with 21st century Western people. We've always thought this way. This is a human form of thinking. So when we go back and read metaphors in Hosea, a lot of those metaphors are ones that make us go, hmm, how do I understand that? And some of them even seem foreign 
to us. When to Hosea's audience, they would have been clearly and easily understood. It was their common language. So a lot of times when we read books like Hosea that are written with metaphors, just from Hosea 1 through Hosea 12, a lot of times when we read them, we're stuck trying to figure out what on earth does this mean? So what I want to do, even before next week when we talk about themes and we put Hosea into its historical context, I want us thinking in terms of metaphors because understanding how we think in metaphors will inform how we read and understand these passages. You with me? All right. That's the first section. That's on metaphors. Now let's look at one of the most common metaphors in Hosea. You get it right out of the box. Hosea 1, verse 2. The Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Wow. And that's the way the book starts. Now, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom. <laughs> and I mean, it's just right there in the beginning. <laughs> um, Omer Adonai. God says to Hosea, to him to go, to take a wife of whoredom. Now, I think the way this is written should serve as a slap in the face to wake us up. This should make you sit up and take notice. This should maybe even bother you. A few of you are as old as I am. Ryan, you will not remember this. This happened probably before your mom was born. But right behind you is a really nice man named Tim Wilson. (laughs) And Tim Wilson will remember this because he's real old like I am. In the 1960s, there was a commercial series that went on. Let's see if we can make it play here. America wakes up with Skin Bracer. Eggs. I needed that. If you need waking up, slap on some Bracer. Its skin tightener and chin chillers can help you come out smoking. That's smoking Joe Frazier, the boxer. (laughs) Thanks. I needed that. That was the ad. The ad was, thanks, I needed that. A cold slap in the face from Skin Bracer. Well, that's kind of the way this passage is starting out. It's kind of like, thanks, I needed that. As it's just like, wham! Now, some of you are going to be bothered by this passage. You're going to say, what kind of God tells someone to ruin their life by going and marrying a wife of whoredom? 
And, and it's, it's, um, it's not the kind of thing, first of all, <laughs> it, there, there is a deep metaphor here. And we don't know specifically what Hosea is being told. See this, this word, this word, um, zununim is not the typical Hebrew word for a prostitute. It's a plural form, not a singular, a plural abstract. It would be called grammatically. But what it is, is, um, and, and it's the reason it doesn't get translated, go marry, go take to yourself uh, as a wife, a prostitute. It says a wife of whoredom because it's, it's a quality, it's a, it's a trait in a sense. So one of probably two things is being said here. Either go marry someone who has a tendency towards sexual immorality. Um, by the way, same word that's used in the Hebrew for fornicate. Same root. So it's either go marry someone who has a tendency towards sexual immorality. Or it might mean go marry one of the Israelites around you who doesn't follow God the way she should. And the reason I say that is because uh, of the way this metaphor of, of whoredom is used in the book of Isaiah. And we'll look at that some more in a minute. But before we move past this, regardless of which one it is, this book starts out with a slap in the face that says, wake up, you need this. And this is a book I'm convinced not only they needed, but God has placed it into Holy Scripture because we need it. And the lessons we can learn out of this book are dramatic in the way they can affect our lives. And you may listen to them and you may say, well, I already knew that lesson. But it never hurts to hear it again. Because a lot of the lessons in Scripture have a half-life, at least in my brain, of about 17 minutes. About 17 minutes later, I'm, I can handle about half of what I heard. About 17 minutes after that, I'm down to about a fourth. And you get me a couple hours away from it, and I've got such a small fragment of it, I've basically forgotten it. So it never hurts to hear this again. And I dare say, most people don't spend a lot of time studying Hosea and understanding the messages from there. So it's useful all the way around. Now, this idea of whoredom in Hosea continues throughout the book. I've grabbed a couple of passages for you. Look at Hosea 4, 10 through 11. Hosea writes, they shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply because they've forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine and new wine, which take away the understanding. They shall eat but not be satisfied. By the way, Eating in Hosea is a whole nother metaphor. And we still use that metaphor today. We don't use the metaphor of whoring as much. 
uh, though it is used on occasion in legal circles. In legal circles, there are many cases that you've got to file. You have to hire an expert witness to support this argument or that argument. And there are wonderful, legitimate expert witnesses. There are also expert witnesses who are kind of like a jukebox. You just put in your money and tell them what song to sing and they'll sing it. Um, A lot of lawyers will call that type of a witness a testifying whore. Now, that's not polite, but I, eat, I, I, I tried a case in St. Louis one time where the other side put on what I believe to be one of these types of witnesses. And I said to him, I said, sir, you're this fella here, John Doe? Yes, I am. I said, have you read the documents and what they say about you from the companies you work for? Uh, some of them. I said, they say, let's go ask John Doe. He is a whore who will say whatever we want him to. That's you, isn't it? Uh, yes, sir. <laughs> and how much are they paying you today? Oh, this much. And you're going to say exactly what they want. Yes, sir. I mean, we use that, but not as often because it's, it's distasteful. It doesn't seem polite. Moreover, we use eating all the time as a metaphor. And if you doubt that, let me give you something to chew on. Because I roasted that fella. And you would get all of those metaphors. So he's using multiple metaphors here. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply. In other words, they will engage in sexual activity with no procreation. They will eat, but they won't benefit from the food. There's a type of curse that was used back in Hosea's day called a futility curse. And that's what this is. This is a futility curse. They will try everything they can, but it isn't going to work. It's useless to them. Not a bad idea. Is that because of what I was saying? Oh, okay. But the 10-year-old just left. I'll quit saying whoredom. <laughs> um, but it's in the Bible. Okay. These are called futility curses. You do what you want, but it's going to be futile. It's not going to bear fruit. And so when we read a passage like this, we shouldn't read it and, and just understand that metaphor. We need to translate it into our life. So we can use some different metaphors that make sense for us that are similar in meaning to that metaphor that was being used. What are you chasing after? Are you just spinning your wheels? This is futile. You are like uh, running on a treadmill. You're going nowhere. You'll never reach your destination. Think of it in terms of our travel metaphors we use for life. You know, life's a journey. 
we plug in travel metaphors very readily in the way we think about life. And so the travel metaphors work almost better for us in this futility because what he's, they're saying is, is whatever you're chasing after, you're not going to get it because of how you're doing it. Look at the rest of this in verse 11. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They'll play the whore but not multiply because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom. Wine, new wine, which takes away the understanding. They have forsaken the Lord. They're not following God. They're going nowhere. And life is futile. And they're not going to be what they can be. And they're not going to appreciate what they can appreciate. They're not going to grow how they can grow. And, 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 and it's a waste. Verse 12 continues. My people inquire of a piece of wood. Their walking staff gives them oracles. Because a spirit of whoredom has led them astray. They've left God to play after the whore. Now, understand here. How are we doing time-wise? We're making it. Um, there is a... <laughs> I'm going to use another... Uh, uh, literature word there's a meta narrative at play here a meta narrative is a narrative that runs throughout scripture not just a a theme or a narrative within a book but one you'll find in genesis you find it in exodus you find it throughout scripture all the way into revelation and that meta narrative is a massive metaphor Of God as a husband and his people as a bride. Jesus uses this metaphor over and over in his teaching. In the book of Revelation, the wedding supper of the Lamb has come. You've got this metaphor. If you go back to Mount Sinai, the covenant that God entered into with his people on Mount Sinai was a covenant that is written as a covenant of marriage. And so God will do these things in the marriage and the people will do these things. And the people were to be the bride of God. So if that's the meta narrative and that's the metaphor that's been established for long time back, going back at least to Moses, but even before, then what you've got as the people of God are being called a whore makes a little more sense because they've left their husband who is God and they have chased after others. And so my people inquire of a piece of wood. Did you know in 1970, Parker Brothers came out with a game. It was called prediction rod and oh it had all of the mystique and mysticalness of the people who were doing a little too much lsd in 1970 you could take this stick and you could take this and you could put these discs down and you could hold it and it would divine for you answers to your questions that's called rhabdomancy 
two Greek words put together there. Rhabdos in the Greek is like a, a sinew or a rod or something like that. Kind of a stick. And rhabdomancy means you're using a stick to predict or to say something. And that was common in the day of Hosea. Not just in the Holy Land. It was common in Greece. That's why that's a Greek word that we use, rhabdomancy. It comes from the two Greek words that were used at the time. Say, well, a bunch of weirdos. Oh, it's been common even in our era. Do you realize rhabdomancy is the basis for the magic wand? The whole idea that this stick will do something magical. Dousing, divining rods, same principle. I don't want to offend anyone, but if you go back even to the time where Joseph Smith says that he found the tablets that become the Book of Mormon on Hill Cumorah in, uh, outside of Rochester, New York. He and others were famous for using those rods to find things, divining rods. And it was considered just natural. You could use a stick to help you find something. Some people say, oh, I found water that way. Well, I got news for you. You can dig in 30 different spots in my backyard, and if you dig deep enough, you're going to find water. We're above an aquifer. But, ah, ah, ah. That's what Israel was doing. My people inquire of a piece of wood. Now, don't get me wrong. It's important that we understand what to do in this life. It's important that we make decisions. But we need to make them not based upon what a stick's telling us. We need to make them based upon what God's saying. We don't look outside of God to determine what to do in this life. Our answers to this life and what choices we make come from the will of God for us and nowhere else. And some of you might say, well, okay, but how do I determine the will of God? Maybe I need a stick. People who have been infused with the Holy Spirit need no extra aid. Say, okay, well that sounds mystical and that sounds nice, but how do I know if it's the Holy Spirit speaking to me or a a bad burrito I had for breakfast? Well, I, I can't give you all of the answers. If there was a simple, how do you live... Uh, discern the will of God, here it is in three easy steps, then that book would be on everybody's shelves. I dare say that book would be in the Bible. And the reason why is some of this is God wants us to learn and struggle. God wants us to try to grow in our minds. But I can tell you this. This book gives us a lot of instruction And the first thing we need to do to understand the will of God is to read what God has said. And try and understand his will. And I have found in my life that 90% of the decisions I need to make, I get an answer if I just try and understand the will of God. Now that leaves 10% where I'm kind of like, I don't know. And on those 10%, it can be really challenging. But that's where it's important to have godly friends who you can get godly counsel from. 
That's where it's very important to spend time in prayer. Just asking God to give you insight. That's where it's very important to try and and learn those things. But we've always got to, to... I'll tell you one of the most important things you can do to know the will of God. Is to spend time with Him every day. If you didn't get one of my new devotional books for this year... Tell me and, and, or tell Brent and, and we'll get you one. Spend time every day with God. Because what's happened to you and I, Pavlov explained this. It's classical conditioning in psychiatric or psychological terms. And Pavlov was trying to measure how does, um, you know, does a dog start salivating? An involuntary response. Start salivating simply by hearing the footsteps of someone bringing that dog food. And so he started measuring the salivation of dogs with a bell, ringing a bell. And what he would do is he'd ring a bell and then feed the dog. He'd ring a bell and feed the dog. He'd ring a bell and feed the dog. And after a while, that dog was conditioned, unconsciously conditioned. And if that dog heard a bell, he'd start salivating, whether it was feeding time or not. His body was conditioned to respond. Our brains have been conditioned to respond to things. And there is impurity that all of us have put into our lives that we have learned to respond to. There are fears that you and I have, worries that you and I have, that we automatically respond to. And those automatic responses will color the way we see facts. They'll color the way we see the world. They'll color the way we see morality, right and wrong and and direction. And they're being colored by this unconscious fear or this unconscious worry or this unconscious impurity. And so when Paul talks about how important it is we renew our minds, he's talking about, in our terminology, rewiring our brains to make us more godly. And God rewires our brains when we spend time with him, time in his word, time in worship with him. He's at work rewiring this mess. And as he rewires us, we better understand the will of God. All right, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm lagging. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. It's another, I guess, simile instead of metaphor, but it's the same imaging. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? God wants to feed them like a lamb, but they are just a stubborn heifer. I had two. I decided to become a cattle baron. And uh, don't laugh, Becky. Is Catherine in here? My sister Catherine. Where is she? Is she in here? She's so good. Then I'll tell this story on her. Teach her to show up. So... I bought these two heifers. And I think I'm a natural cattleman. After all, I live in Texas. It seems to me it should just be in eight. So they get delivered, but they're put in the wrong place. So I got to move them from this field over to that field. So I'm trying to figure out how to do it. Well, they don't want to go. 
So I'm thinking, well, I got no choice. I'm going to have to stampede the herd of two cows. And so, but the problem is they're in a field that doesn't have a gate. And that's why I can't leave them there. I mean, after all, a lot of you have been to our place. We're in a neighborhood. We just don't have deed restrictions. So, so I've got them, but I don't have a gate. So I station Catherine. Catherine, I want you to stand here where there's no gate like this. And if the cows start coming to you, just sort of stomp your feet and wave and yell. I got to get these cows to move over there so I can shut the gate behind them. So I'm over there and I, yeah, because I've seen them do that on TV. Yeah. And I think I messed up because I wasn't wearing a cowboy hat. So they didn't know that they were supposed to obey me. So they start running for the open gate where Catherine is. So I'm chasing after them. Catherine, wave, yell. Oh no, my sister, she turns tail and runs. The cows go straight out the gate onto Falba Road. And at this point, the lawyer in me is kicking in because I did handle a case one time where a car hit a cow and hurt the people in the car and the owner of the cow was held liable for letting the cow out on the road. So I'm like, oh my goodness, we got to get the cows back. So I'm out there running after the cows while the cows are like, not on your life, idiot. And they just start running toward 249. Those of you on the internet, that's like an eight-lane highway. And I'm like, I, 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 don't, I don't know what to do with these stubborn heifers. I don't want stubborn heifers. I like something you can feed like a little gentle lamb. Now, the end of the story is, my two stubborn heifers? Um, <laughs> unless you have any doubt about the metaphor, Hosea says in just the next couple of verses, the revolters have gone deep into slaughter and uses the word for slaughtering cows. Now, what does this mean? This means that choices matter in this life. We want to make good choices. We want godly decisions. We need to because our choices matter. Don't be satisfied to be a stubborn heifer. Be the lamb that the Lord can be shepherd to, who he can feed and nurture and make lie down in green pastures and lead you beside still waters. Who leaves you without want. All of Psalm 23. That is not talking about stubborn heifers. It's talking about lambs. Our choices matter. God made us not as computer programs or puppets. He made us as incredibly valuable people who can use their brains and make absolute choice in a matter. All right. Enough of that metaphor for just a moment. I want points for home, and points for home come from a couple of different metaphors, but this gives us about six minutes, so maybe two minutes of metaphor. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like a dew that goes away early, that cloud that comes and then just evaporates with the day. The dew that's on the grass, but evaporates within the day. What shall I do with you? Now, this is God asking a rhetorical question. He wasn't expecting them to answer. But if you look at what he says, it's, it's, it's important within the context of the book itself. 
Because the book says that God gave them prosperity. But they ignored God in those prosperous times. Uh, Hosea 2 verse 8 is just a, a, a passage that, that absolutely, it, it almost moves me to tears. Hosea 2 verse 8. Look at this. God says, I gave them all of this stuff. I gave them all these things. And she, Israel, but the wife in this metaphor sense, didn't know that it was I who gave it to her. Didn't know I gave her the grain, the wine, the oil. I lavished on her silver and gold. They used it for Baal. They gave credit to the fake God. So God says, what am I going to do with you? I gave you prosperity and you just ignored me and gave credit to someone else. So I sent calamity your way. If prosperity doesn't work, how about calamity? God tries calamity and do you know what they do? They turn to Syria and say, hey, help, we're having problems. Egypt, help, we're having problems. They turned elsewhere. God says, I promised you judgment. If you didn't change, I promised you hope if you would change. But whether I promised you judgment or hope, the results were always the same. And that's why God had to destroy that generation. You know, the the point for home is, to me, on this, wherever you are in life, prosperity, calamity, Whatever you're doing, make God the center. If you've got prosperity, if it's one of those days where the sun is out and the wind's behind you, thank God and give him all the glory and praise and figure out how he wants you to use those blessings of today for other people. If today's a day of calamity where you feel like your world's going to crumble and you, you have a choice between going left or right, always follow God. Let him walk through the calamity with you and he'll lead you out the right door in the right time. These are the choices we have in this life. Point for home number two. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh and I spared her fair neck, but I will put Ephraim to the yoke. (laughs) I really like this passage. So, Back then, if you had a good, nice, trained little cow, you you bring in the harvest of, let's say, barley or wheat. Wheat's easy for us to understand. And you got to separate the kernels of wheat from the husk and from the stalks. Okay? So you put it on what they called the threshing floor. And on the threshing floor, you could get a cow, and that cow could just walk around and step on everything. And when he stepped on it, he was separating out the kernels from the, the, the chaff and, and the, the, the stalks. He could eat while he did it. It's not bad with life. And God says, you know, that's what you were. And so I spared your, your fair neck, you know, your strong neck, your beautiful neck. That's important in cow talk, I think. But he says, I'm just going to put you to the yoke. Right now you're so disobedient, I'm going to put a heavy yoke on you and take you out to plow the field. 
you know, God's going to get God's will done. There's an easy way and there's a hard way. And that's what he's saying there. He's saying, why'd you choose the hard way? Do you know how many movies that easy way, hard way line has been used in? There's an easy way and there's a hard way. There's a hard way and there's an easy way. You choose. There's tons of them. There's one clip with Samuel Jackson I was going to put in here, but it kind of had some crusty things on the other sides of it, so I decided not to. But instead, uh, uh, I'm going to use something that I think is even more instructive. You in here, Ryan? Okay. Now, Gary, we can do this the hard way or the easy way. Or the medium way. Or the semi-medium easy hard way. Or the sort of hard with a touch of awkward, easy, difficult, challenging way. So that's how you want to play it, huh? SpongeBob. You can do it the easy way or the hard way or the medium way or the semi-hard way with the little medium hard ta 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 And God's given us lots of choices and it doesn't matter if you've already started out choosing the hard way. Start moving it the other way. You're not going to beat God. Get on the wagon with Him. Let Him make your life incredible. Point for home number three. I really want us to understand we make real choices. Hosea says, you plowed iniquity, so you reaped injustice. You eat the fruit of lies because you trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors, therefore, you're going to have war. I mean, the, the, the concept here is don't plow iniquity, plow justice and love and faithfulness. Don't eat the fruit of lies, eat the fruit of truth. Don't trust in your numbers, trust in God. You know, think about the way they sowed back then. Do you know what this is? This is nutgrass. I hate nutgrass. It is the bane of my garden. What idiot would go out there and sow nutgrass? Instead, he says, sow for yourself righteousness and reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. It's time to seek the Lord that he'd come and rain righteousness upon you. And that's the point for home. You will reap what you sow. Okay, let me bless you. We're out of time. We'll talk again next week. Lord, in the name of Jesus, I ask your blessings on all who hear this message. May we take seriously your words, your metaphors, to understand how to, to, to become, by the work of your Holy Spirit, all we can become in you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. See you guys next Sunday, God willing.